We are continuing our study through our church's statement of faith, and we are in our section on Jesus. We've already covered uh, really the first two and a half sentences there. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at the last portion. Uh, I'll read through the whole thing here uh, just to kind of see where we've been so far, and then the last sentence, uh, half sentence, I guess, is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. It says, We believe that Jesus the Christ is God the Son, that he has eternally existed without any beginning. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sin and rule them righteously. Jesus became human through the virgin birth while simultaneously keeping all his divine essence. Jesus is the perfect, sinless God-man who voluntarily died on a cross as the sacrificial lamb of God to pay the debt of sin for all who repent and believe on him. And so that, uh, that last portion there about the death of Christ is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Uh, we're not going to take time to read all of the accounts of Jesus' death. Of course, if you look at any of the four Gospels, you look at the last couple of chapters, you'll see a description of Jesus' death. Uh, we're not going to go over all of that. I assume many of you are already quite familiar with that, so we're not going to take time to read those. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross was the main reason that he came to earth. Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 45, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came for the, reason, the, the purpose of giving his life uh, for us on the cross. Uh, we are going to get into some theological jargon here. Uh, and these terms might sound complex, but they're very simple ideas behind them. I think you'll be able to uh, pick up on them pretty easily. Uh, the first term is substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus means that when he died on the cross, he was taking our place. He was a substitute, uh, bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And this leads to an important recognition of the wrath of God the Father poured out on Jesus on the cross. Uh, you really cannot understand the cross if you don't understand how much God hates sin. Uh, we're going to talk about this more in the next hour. But sin cannot go unpunished. God is too just to allow that. And so the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins is if somebody takes our place and takes the punishment that we deserve. Uh, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the full wrath of God against our sins on himself. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 3, starting in verse 23, where it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Uh, Malachi, would you mind just bumping down the white mic? A little bit. I'm hearing a ring, and I think it's this bouncing off of that. So could you turn the, the pulpit mic down just a hair? It's driving me nuts every couple of seconds. I'm getting a ring in my ear. I don't know if you all hear that or not. Uh, all right. So verse 25 there, you see the word propitiation. Is this, is this still on? Testing one, two, three. Okay. Uh, you see the word propitiation in verse 25. Um, does anybody know what propitiation means? Pop quiz. What does the word propitiation mean? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Satisfaction. There you go. That's a good way to, to summarize it. Yes. Uh, propitiation means that when Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God against our sins was satisfied. So he, um, anyway, in other words, when, when, when people sinned in the Old Testament, 
And obviously when we sin today, it's not like God just forgets that. Okay, the wrath of God was stored up against our sins and then poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so at the cross, we see the anger of God, the punishment for sins past and future, being unleashed against Jesus, and they were completely satisfied. Uh, he paid the debt. It was paid in full. So that's, that's what uh, propitiation refers to. Uh, Romans 3, verse 26, this is the next verse in that text. It says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, uh, speaking of God the Father, so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, God would not be just if he just let guilty sinners walk free. We would never respect a judge who allowed somebody who is clearly guilty of the crime to just walk, right? That would be wrong. That would be an unjust judge. And so God must punish sins, but in order to be merciful and to redeem mankind, uh, he sends Jesus to come on our behalf, to bear, uh, to, to satisfy the wrath of God, to pay the penalty for our sins, uh, but then also to allow us to be forgiven. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. Uh, that word is used again in Hebrews 2. Uh, this is a text we saw last, actually, I guess two weeks ago when we talked about the humanity of Jesus. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And this builds on what we saw last time, that Jesus had to become one of us in order to live the life that we should have and die in our place as our representative. He had to become fully human to be our substitute. If he was not truly a man, he could not take our place. And if Jesus was not truly God, he would have no right to offer us forgiveness. Uh, the only way this works is that Jesus is both God and man. He's not some third party uh, trying to save us from God's wrath. Instead, he is the very one that we sinned against, and he came and substituted himself for us. Uh, this concept of substitution makes a lot of sense when you consider the animal sacrifices uh, throughout the Old Testament. Every time a lamb was brought to an altar and killed, this was symbolizing the future death of Jesus on, on our behalf. This is why our statement of faith says there that he, he voluntarily died on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God. Uh, we're going to take a few texts, a few, uh, take a look at a few texts here on this subject of Jesus as the Lamb of God, bearing uh, the sins of, of mankind. First, Isaiah 53. And if you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, you really should read it sometime. It's a great text, uh, probably the clearest text in all of the Old Testament about Jesus and his death on the cross. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Again, notice there, it is God the Father who is the one that is afflicting Jesus in this text. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened 
not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, and there you see an ex, uh, express um, connection between Jesus' death on the cross and the offerings of the Old Testament. He's saying that he was the lamb and he, he made an offering, a guilt offering on behalf of uh, us, his people. When his soul makes that offering, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, which is a reference to the resurrection. He's already been crushed. He's already been killed. And now he's prolonging his days, meaning he's coming back to life. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There's propitiation. God the Father seeing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his wrath being satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressors. So clearly there in those verses, Jesus is pictured as the sacrificial lamb of God. He's led off to the slaughter. He is killed on the cross for the sake of humanity. He bears our sins. He takes our iniquities over and over in those verses that said, uh, that on him was laid the punishment that we had deserved. First uh, Peter 2, verse 24, this is one of the best verses, I would say, in the Bible on the subject of substitutionary atonement. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The blood of lambs cannot atone for sin. It was simply pointing to the one that would someday come and atone for sin. Nobody was saved in the Old Testament because a lamb was killed. Uh, all of that was simply pointing in the future towards the coming of Jesus, his sacrificial death on the cross. And in the same way, we have a symbol of Jesus' death that we do as New Testament Christians, right? What is that? What is our symbol that kind of corresponds to the Old Testament sacrificial lamb system? Lord's Supper. It's a very similar uh, image. It doesn't save you taking the Lord's Supper, just like it doesn't save you if you uh, if you slaughtered a lamb in the Old Testament. The point is, it is a, it's a picture, it's something that we do to point towards that one event in time in which Jesus came and bore uh, the wrath of God against sinners. Uh, John 1 verse 29. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so clearly Jesus is pictured as a sacrificial lamb, bearing in his own body uh, the punishment for our sins. The author of Hebrews <clears throat> writes extensively about how the Old Testament sacrifices <clears throat> were merely uh, pictures of what Jesus would come and do. Uh, Hebrews 9, beginning verse 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so he's pointing out there that every time an animal was sacrificed uh, in the Old Testament, that was simply the followers of God. They were instructed to do that as a picture, a shadow of what was to come. Uh, what was to come, of course, was Jesus dying on the cross. That is what saves everybody that will ever be saved. is because of Christ's death on the cross. And as New Testament believers, again, we have the picture of the Lord's Supper where we take the, the body, the blood of Christ, uh, symbolized in, in the bread and the wine. Uh, and every time that we take that, it's just like the Old Testament saints. The act itself does not save you. It's merely a shadow of what Jesus did on the cross. And that reality is what saves us. Uh, any questions on substitution? I have a couple more things here, but any questions on this so far? Okay. Uh, the cross is the greatest display of love ever. John said, I'm sorry, Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Uh, Jesus did something even greater than that. He didn't lay down his life for his friends, but for his enemies. And this goes beyond even our capacity to understand. No human can love the way that Jesus loved us. In Romans 5, verse 6, Paul says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so the cross of Jesus, uh, paradoxically, displays both the love and the justice of God simultaneously. Never before and never since was God's wrath against sin more clearly displayed than on the cross. It was there that all of God's anger against sin for the future and the past was poured out on Jesus. And yet it was also there that God demonstrated his love. And never before and never since has God's love been more clearly demonstrated than on the cross. He loved us so much that he came and died as one of us, bearing our sins, taking the punishment that we deserved. Uh, let's wrap up here with that last sentence in the statement, which says that he he voluntarily died on a cross, the sacrificial lamb of God, to pay the debt of sin for all who repent and believe on him. Uh, I'm not going to get into the controversial discussion about the extent of the atonement. Uh, I know, how many of you are familiar with concepts of limited atonement? Is that something you've heard of? Okay. Um, it's funny. In a sense, everybody believes in limited atonement, right? Everybody believes that uh, not everybody's going to be saved, and so therefore, obviously, the death of Christ didn't atone for everybody. And at least it wasn't applied to everybody. Uh, but normally, that discussion tends to get into, did Jesus intend to die only for some or for everyone? In other words, did he only want to die for those that he knew would be saved, or those that he had chosen to be saved, however you want to say that? Uh, or did he die on the cross and just kind of offer a potential uh, salvation to everyone, and then it's up to us whether or not we respond to that. I'm not going to get into that conversation because, frankly, I don't find it to be overly helpful. Uh, at the end of the day, we all agree that anyone who repents and believes, which is what our statement says, Jesus died for them. His blood covers their sins, and, and they are immediately forgiven. So uh, even though those conversations are fun to have sometimes, uh, 
it's really not terribly relevant, and that's why it's not in our statement of faith, uh, one way or the other. What it does say is that anybody who repents and believes, anybody who trusts Christ, turns from their sins, and becomes a follower of Jesus, Jesus has paid their debt, they will be immediately forgiven. Uh, this is referring to the application of salvation. And I do want to make a distinction here. Um, some people have suggested that because we, we teach, you know, you have to repent of your sins, you have to believe the gospel to be saved, well, aren't you earning salvation? No. Uh, the earning of salvation was accomplished by Jesus at the cross. We do not earn our salvation. Jesus bought our salvation. But it is applied to us the moment we repent and believe the gospel. Please don't confuse those two. Uh, our repentance and, and faith is not the means by which we merit God's favor. In other words, if somebody were to ask you, why has God forgiven your sins? You cannot rightly answer that question without making reference to Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, you can't say God has forgiven me because I repented and I placed my faith in him. Uh, no. <laughs> if it were not for the cross, that would all be completely irrelevant. If somebody asks why God forgave you, the correct answer is that he forgave me because Jesus paid my debt. He died in my place. He took my sins on the cross, and he offers me his righteousness. That is the basis for the forgiveness of God for any one of us. But the application of that salvation takes place when we repent and believe the gospel. <clears throat> uh, I'm, not, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not typically a fan of analogies. I think sometimes analogies can get us in trouble, uh, but here's one that might help. Uh, let's say that I'm, I'm 16 years old. I just got my license. Okay, and <clears throat> my dad offers to buy me a car. By the way, none of this happened. I got my license at like 20, so this is talking about me. This is a scenario. I'm 16 years old. I get a license. My dad offers to buy me a car. And so he gives me a check, <clears throat> a blank check, and says, go to the dealership, uh, pick out whatever car you'd like, fill out the check for whatever amount, and, uh, and get yourself a car. I, I go to the, the dealership. Of course, I pick out my Lamborghini, and uh, they, they tell me how much it's going to cost. I fill out the check, I give it to them, and I leave with my new car. Now, if somebody were to ask me, how were you able to buy that car? I could say, well, I wrote a check for it. Technically, that's true. Uh, but the real answer is, I could never have bought that car. My dad bought that car for me. I just wrote down the number on the check and handed it to somebody. Uh, it was his money. He's the one who purchased it. My writing the check was a necessary part of the process, but that doesn't mean that I earned the car by writing the check. Okay, when we repent and believe the gospel, that's like signing the check of salvation. We're not earning our salvation. Uh, the money behind the check was Jesus' death on the cross. That's what purchased our forgiveness. That's what purchased our salvation. Uh, simply repenting of our sins, turning to Christ in faith, is accepting the generous offer of grace that was paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. He is the reason we're forgiven. He is the one who earned our redemption. We just respond to his offer, and thus the blood is applied to our account. Uh, any questions on that? You find any holes in that analogy, Malachi? It's the problem with analogies. You push them too far, there's always a problem. But... Okay. Mm-hmm.
Right. One of the issues that I've found with um, a lot of Christians is they tend to think, you know, we're so anti-works salvation, right? That's such a buzzword in our mind. Oh, we can't, we don't earn salvation by works. But every time the New Testament talks about works-based salvation, it's referring to the works of the Old Testament law. It's Paul in Galatians saying, uh, keeping the Old Testament doesn't save you. Okay, it's not saying, you know, like you said, well, isn't believing a work, isn't repenting a work? That's not the point. Um, the point is that we cannot earn salvation by trying to keep God's laws. All of us will be broken by God's laws. We cannot keep them perfectly. Uh, that is always the emphasis in the New Testament. I can't find a single passage in all of the New Testament where uh, anybody says, you know, salvation is not of works, where it's not in the context talking about works of the law. Uh, we don't earn favor with God by keeping the Old Testament law. So it's not even the same conversation um, to be had. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we, we earn salvation by our repentance. Again, I, our repentance is ultimately the work of God in our hearts, right? We see in, um, I believe it's Acts chapter 8, the story of Cornelius, where uh, Peter talks to them about how, how Cornelius had repented at the, at the preaching of the gospel. <clears throat> and the people listening say, well, then God has, has granted repentance to them. Okay, repentance, the change of heart that, that takes place in our life is the work of God. Right? John 6, Jesus said, nobody can come to me except the Father draw him. And so to take credit for something like that, uh, as though we're somehow earning our salvation because we repented at the preaching of the gospel is just completely getting things backwards. Uh, even Ephesians chapter 2, right? We're saved by grace uh, through our faith. And even that faith is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. And so we cannot boast. We cannot uh, brag about anything that we've done. We're simply saved because of the grace of God. But, uh, yes, make sure that we don't, uh, we don't confuse what earned our salvation with how our, how our salvation is received. Okay? What earned our salvation was Jesus alone. We, we contribute nothing. Okay? But his, his offer of salvation is accepted when we turn from our sins and trust in him. So to conclude here then, the, the debt of sin was paid in full at the cross. That's what propitiation means, satisfaction. The debt was completely paid. I'm going to make reference to this in my sermon a little bit this morning. Uh, this is one reason I don't believe that Jesus went to hell for three days. Have you ever heard that? Uh, that Jesus burned in hell for three days for our sins? No, 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 no. On the cross, what did he say? It is finished, right? It is satisfied. It's done. Uh, he did not need to go and suffer any longer. Uh, one of the reasons that that, 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 that is wrong, uh, by the way, is because, again, on the cross, we're told, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, what, today I'll be with you in hell? No, he says in paradise. We're going to talk more about what that means here in, in, um, in a few minutes when I get into my sermon this morning. But if Jesus went to suffer in hell for three days and the, the debt of sin wasn't truly paid on the cross, the Bible clearly teaches that on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. He took it all on the cross of Jesus. He, he, he paid them. He satisfied the wrath of God in full. And when he breathed his final breath, the debt of sin was forever and fully paid. It was truly finished on the cross. And so uh, when we're asked, again, why are you saved? Why did God forgive you? It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with what Jesus did 
uh, dying in our place. I do have a few minutes here if you have any questions or anything you'd like to talk about further. Yes? Yeah, we're going to, we're actually, again, in my sermon, I'm going to get into some of the nerdy stuff about, uh, it, one of the issues here is, frankly, the King James translation of hell. Um, the King James translates four different Greek words, all as hell, and that becomes very confusing because they're not always talking about the same place. So, for instance, have you ever read in Revelation, the King James says, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire? I thought hell was the lake of fire. Uh, it's just a confusing translation. What most translations do now is they'll say death and Hades were cast into the lake of hell because Hades is distinct from the final lake of fire. Uh, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. If, if you ask me my opinion on what Jesus did in the, in the intervening days, um, just to give you a brief picture that we'll get into more. In it, prior to the cross, nobody went to heaven when they died. Okay. Everybody went to Sheol, is the Old Testament word. Hades is the New Testament word. It was a temporary holding place because the wrath of God against sin had not been paid yet. Um, so God didn't receive them into his presence when they died. Instead, they were kind of held at arm's length. When Jesus dies on the cross, uh, you know, in Matthew, was it 27, the tombs are opened, the Old Testament saints rise, and it's like, what's going on there? Well, those are the, the souls in Hades that were kept at arm's length from God in that temporary holding place. It's not hell. It's not a place of suffering. It's Abraham's bosom. It's the place of rest. Uh, they're kept there. Jesus dies on the cross. They rise again. And it says they ascend with him in Ephesians 4. That, that Christ, before his ascension, he goes down to paradise. It's not heaven. To Abraham's bosom. Okay, And I got, we get so confused because paradise, we think instantly heaven. Um, John 20, Jesus says to Mary in the garden, I have not yet ascended to my father. This is after the resurrection. So he didn't go to heaven. Uh, we know he went to Hades. Other texts tell us that. So he, he goes down to the, to the bottom of the earth, Ephesians 4 says, and he releases those souls that were kept captive there. And he, you know, he led captivity captive, that verse says. So he, he brings them up and, and they ascend with him to heaven. So in other words, Old Testament saints prior to the cross were kept in this temporary holding place, Abraham's bosom, paradise, whatever you want to call it. It's not heaven. They weren't with the Father. They were kept in that temporary holding place. Jesus dies for their sins. The debt has finally been paid. They're now released, and that site is emptied, if you will. So they're now in the presence of God in heaven. What gets confused is by translating Hades as hell, because it's, it, it messes everything up. Or thinking paradise is heaven. Uh, both of those are, are confusions in that point. Did I just confuse everybody? Uh, some of you are looking at me funny now. Not hell, Hades. Yeah. Hades has two sides. 
Okay, so Hades has one side that would be a place of torment where those, uh, if we die today, that's where we go. We go to the torment side of Hades that will eventually be cast into the lake of fire. There's another side of Hades, which is paradise or Abraham's bosom. Okay, so the text we're going to look at today is Luke 16, where you have the rich man and Lazarus, right? Uh, they're, they're in the same place. I mean, they're talking to each other. And yet one is in a place of rest, one is in a place of torment, and there's a chasm fixed between the two. Yes, so that side of Hades or Sheol, they're still there. Right. And I, I believe if we die to, if somebody dies today without Jesus, they don't go to hell. They go to Hades, which will then be cast into the lake of fire. So, again, all of this gets confused when the King James translates all of this by the same word because we think it's the same place. Um, I'll get into more of that in my sermon. I know it's kind of nerdy, complex stuff, uh, but it is... If you don't have those distinctions, a lot of things won't make sense. Um, like in the Old Testament, regardless, somebody who's a saint or a wicked person, it doesn't matter. They all go to Sheol, which is just referring to that temporary holding place. It doesn't distinguish between you know, the, the, the torment side or the rest side. Um, but we get those distinctions more in the New Testament. So anyway, it is, it is confusing when you tell people, you know, Prior to the cross, nobody went to heaven when they died. And even now, nobody goes to hell when they die. And people look at you like, wait, what? Uh, but ultimately, yes. Ultimately, Christians today, after the cross, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So after the cross, yes, we go straight to heaven. We go straight to the presence of God. Uh, there's no longer that temporary holding place in between because the debt of sins is, has been paid. Um, Malachi. I know I just opened a big can of worms right before we're supposed to close here. Go ahead. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, this all gets very complex, especially if you grow up like I did with the kind of just simple, you die, you either go to heaven or hell, and there's no other, you know what I mean? Like there's no explanations about these things. Um, and I remember the first time I read in Revelation 20, death and, hate, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And I thought, what in the world? I thought hell was the lake of fire. What is this place? Um, so anyways, we'll get into more of that in the next hour, uh, but it'll be a fun discussion. Let's pray.